If I was to ask you what you did over a year ago on a specific date, where you'd been, who you'd met, what you did and at what time, would you be able to tell me? I very much doubt it. I know I wouldn't have a clue. On the 26th of April 1999, I can tell you I was at Cardiff University studying law, but I couldn't tell you what I was doing, whether I attended lectures, who I met and at what time I met them. I would not have a clue. On that particular date, Barry George, who was a vulnerable adult with disabilities, had gone to an organisation that helped people with disabilities regarding a housing issue. Little was he to realise how significant that date would be. On the same day, Jill Dando, who at the time was a high-profile TV presenter and celebrity, was fatally shot dead outside a home address. It was a crime that shocked the nation and generated a lot of media attention. The police were under significant pressure to find the person or persons responsible. Barry George was arrested over a year after her death and was convicted of the murder on the 2nd of July 2001. Michelle, his sister, campaigned for years as she knew he was the victim of a miscarriage of justice. She fought tirelessly with others to try and get his conviction overturned. And in 2007, the Court of Appeal decided the conviction was unsafe and it was quashed. He was subsequently acquitted at the retrial. In this episode, I talked to Michelle Diskin-Bates, Barry's sister. We talk about the evidence that led to his conviction, which was flimsy and controversial. We also talk about the impact the case had on her and her family. She has said in a book that she has written about her experience, but justice is never served by the conviction of the innocent. This is Michelle's story. Michelle, I wondered if you could just introduce yourself for the podcast listeners. Okay, my name is Michelle Diskin-Bates and I am the sister of Barry George, who was wrongfully convicted of the murder of Jill Dando. I have no other claim to fame other than that I wrote a book about our experience with the justice system and um, how Barry came to be wrongfully convicted and, you know, to, to try to explain to people how a wrongful conviction affects the family of the person wrongly convicted and also the victim of the crime because they don't receive justice either. They're also victims of wrongful conviction. Um, I wonder if we could start by just talking a little bit about your childhood with Barry. What was Barry like as a child? Barry was a sweet child. He had difficulties. We Nobody knew in 1960s, in the 60s, people weren't really being diagnosed with issues at that time. The doctor noticed that he was hyperactive, and so we knew that. And we also knew that he was diagnosed at about the age of four with epilepsy. My sister had epilepsy, but she would have the fall down on the floor, grand mal seizures whereas Barry's were absent seizures, so a little bit more difficult to recognise. And uh, that was the three of us children. And Elder sister. I'm the eldest of all of us. Yeah. And then there was Susan and then there was Barry. And so two siblings, both of whom had disabilities. And they would be disabilities that weren't just physical, but affected their mental health as well. So fast forward quite a long period of time, at some stage you're living in Ireland and I believe you were listening to some sort of broadcast when you first become aware that your brother has been arrested. Oh Can yes, that was explain the what happened? biggest shock. I'd been living in Ireland for quite a few years. I decided when I was 18 that I was not going to live in London any longer. I liked Ireland and I decided to settle there. For people who sort of think that social media and mobile phones are normal, at that time they were far from normal. They weren't in existence at all. So it was quite difficult to keep in touch with people. If I wanted to phone my mom, I would need a big handful of coins to feed into the machine. And that was quite a lot out of my wages each week. So we weren't in that close a contact. So I sort of lost touch with Barry, but 
for no other reason than that was the infrastructure of the time. You know, I didn't earn enough money to keep going backwards and forwards to the UK. You know, time moved on. I found somebody. I got married. We settled. We had three children. And this particular day, I was just listening to the radio, not even really tuning into it. But something came up on the news and I, my, my brain tuned in and it said somebody's been arrested for the murder of Jill Dando. And I thought, oh, that's fantastic. I'm so glad because that poor family, it must be about a year since she was killed. How mm -hmm. on earth did it take a year to get someone for her murder? So I was barely listening in and the newscaster said his name is Barry Balsara. Well, Balsara is not our family name. No. At one stage, Barry had said, this is my email address, and it contained Balsara. So alarm bells ringing. Yes, they really did. And then I thought, don't be ridiculous, don't be ridiculous. There must be many people with that name. But it wouldn't go away. I had to then ring my mum, who didn't tell me until the end of our conversation, when I again said to her, do you want me to pray about anything when I go to prayer meeting? You know, is is there something that you would like me to pray about? And when she said, well, you could pray for your brother, then I knew. That must have been extremely shocking to hear that news in the way that you did, because you're miles away, like you said, from your family. Well, the first thing that happened was I went into total shock. Yeah. And I thought, this makes absolutely no sense. Why on earth would Barry have done something like that? Now, of course, I couldn't say he hadn't. No. How could I know? But it made no sense. But you knew your brother, so I imagine you're sort of thinking, why yeah. would he be involved in the murder of a high-profile BBC yeah. presenter? I, I couldn't see that there would be a connection, but I knew I had to look into it. Of course, on that day, literally, our lives were turned upside down. I walked around in a daze and I thought, can our lives ever be normal again? You know, I'm going to have to go and check on this. It's all a big mistake. It has to be a big mistake. So I arranged to go over to the UK to see my mum. Meanwhile, she found herself under siege in her home because the media found out who she was. And 13 days straight, she couldn't even twitch a curtain. Was she living on her own? Yes, she was living on her own. So it was up to her neighbours, and thankfully they, they stepped forward, and they would buy her milk and bread and cat food and pass it over the back fence, because there's a terrace of houses, so nobody could get to the back. So the media were just encamped outside for 13 days straight. I mean, from... You at this stage, and they don't know at this stage, whether or not Barry's even going to be charged with any criminal offence. No. But yet they sort of all circulated around her house and she must have felt, I imagine, extremely vulnerable and isolated. And like you said, she obviously had her neighbours. At what stage did you manage to get over to? It would have been shortly after that that I managed to get there. At that stage, the media had found me. So, you know, but it wasn't too bad, really, for me at that time, because the solicitor was now in charge. So kind of we weren't the only people that they could talk to. So when I got there, my, my thought was, I'm here to support my mom. I'm here to show the police that there's no reason to think that Barry did this. And I know you had some telephone conversations with Barry's solicitor before he was formally charged, where she, and I'm sure you tell me if I'm wrong, but it given you the impression that they didn't have any evidence. That's exactly Barry. right. Yes. She had said to me, they can't charge him with anything. There's no evidence of any sort. When did that change? When did you learn that they were going to charge him? Just how? before I came over. Um, I was walking around doing some shopping, thinking, okay, that was really good news. I don't need to worry about that anymore. And then I got a phone call. I was still in Ireland. I got a phone call from the solicitor to say, I'm really sorry, they're charging him. I said, but you said there was nothing, there was no evidence. And that's when she told me that his Crombie coat, so that's kind of a woolen fabric, mm -hmm. had been tested and they had found a single particle of gunshot residue in it. And based on that, they were going to actually charge him and they did. So I understand that at some stage you were told that the, the forensic evidence, the gunshot residue evidence, may have been some sort of cross-contamination because they'd actually opened up the forensic bag 
where the coat was contained to take photographs of that coat prior to it being tested. That's exactly correct. But I heard that on the day that the solicitor told me because she said, they're going to charge him. She said, but this means nothing. And then she told me that they had opened the forensic bag. They'd taken out his coat. So they put this coat on the tailor's dummy in the police photographic studio and they put it over a police officer, his shirt. And he was an officer who from time to time would carry a firearm. So he brought, he opened it, he went home, he collected a shirt Mm -hmm. because he wanted to take photographs. And he did all these photographs in in the photographic studio, throwing the coat down onto the tray thing that he brought it in and then throwing it across the back of a chair and taking other photographs. We eventually found out why he'd done it. Why had he done it? He said... He wanted to show the witnesses, because nobody saw Jill being killed, Mm -hmm. and so he wanted to show the witnesses what Barry's clothes looked like that day to see if they recognised that as the outfit the person was wearing. And, I mean, the biggest thing, really, in court at the first trial... So I'm finding it really shocking to hear that because it's something that... It's like showing someone a photograph and saying, it is the person who killed yes. an individual. It's so suggestive. It's, it's leading a yeah. witness Very down a certain so. path, isn't it? Yeah. So Mike Mansfield then, at the first trial, said... Um, So can you tell us how many witnesses saw those photographs? They're such important photographs that you would open evidence bags and take the stuff out before sending it to forensics. If they're that important, tell the court how many witnesses saw those photographs. And the guy said, none. And the thing about it was, whatever they might have found on his coat, the person at the scene of the crime was wearing a wax jacket. So completely different outfit. Yeah, and instead of being a coat that comes down to the knees, this was a coat that ended just below the hip. So the descriptions totally of the witnesses different. were completely different. Yes. So you then come over to England, you have been under the impression he wasn't going to be charged, and then you discover he is... And at some point you went, I know, to visit him in prison. Was he at Belmarsh? He was at Belmarsh because that's where most of the remands would be for the London area. My mum had been and so she told me kind of, you know, what to expect. Mm -hmm. But only in that you've got to take this much identification with you and you've got to take your bills to prove that you live where you say you live and all of these things. And they've all got to be in date and there's a whole load of hoops And I fully understand those hoops. They're important. Absolutely, yeah. But we got in there and because I was close family, I should have had an open visit. So that's in the big visitors hall. Yeah, where where there's lots of people and you can have cups of tea and it's a little bit more relaxed. That's right. And I mean, I don't have any convictions in my past. I don't even have a suggestion of anything. My mother had been to see him and had now got open visits. And they told me I would have to have the very first one would have to be a closed visit. So in other words, inside a little box. And that after that, it was automatic. I would go on to open visits. My mum's brother went on to open visits after one initial one. And I mean, he's a male living in Ireland. Again, no, no convictions or anything, but he's not exactly close family no he's not siblings no and so he was on open visits and it turned out that every single time that we went to visit Barry we all had to go on closed visits because they wouldn't give me an open visit and nobody told me why and this went on for months and months and eventually it was a newspaper man who came to me in Ireland and was looking for a story. And I told him what was going on. And he said, that's not right. He said, I can give you a number to ring, but don't tell them I gave it to you. So I rang them, the police, and I asked them why I was still on closed visits. And the young lad came back, young woman, and said, you're not on closed visits. And then she was told to end the call. Right. So she wasn't meant to reveal that. No. So when I got back to the prison, I said, I'm still on these closed visits. They said, you have decided that I should be on closed visits. 
And they said, no, it's the police. So the, the newspaper man had said to me, you do know that the police are worried about you. They're worried about you? In what, in what way? Because I could reach Barry. I could get Barry to understand things. But because of his difficulties? Yes, because of his difficulties. I could give him hope. You see, my mum could support him, mm -hmm. but she didn't have the ability to give him hope. But I did. I just kept saying, we will fight this. There's no evidence. They cannot convict you because I was wrong. But they apparently were worried I was possibly going to stop them from getting their conviction. He felt intimidated because we couldn't go for a proper visit. And I started to feel guilty because every time I went to a visit, everybody had to go into this horrible, dirty box. So the prison, having said, no, it's the police who have you on this, I arrived at the prison for my next visit and I was alone and somebody from security came across to meet me in the visitor centre before I went in and said, I hear you're having some problems. I said, yes, I am. And he said, well, for today, I'll give you an open visit and then I'll see what I can do about getting you open visits from now on. And from that day on, we never had another closed visit. My mom had a breakdown. And oh, it was during the this period. Because of all the stress. From everything going on, from having to go to the prison and try to mentally get through the regime to reach her son with the media on the case all the time. And, you know, she knew that they were talk, talking about things and saying things in court about her son. And it was all too much. And she had a breakdown and she ended up in hospital and she was there for quite a few months. Thankfully, we managed to keep that from the media. But that time must be very difficult for you, because I remember having read your book, you talk about having to go on various journeys. Obviously, you're away from your family as well, your children. That's right. I mean, every time I, I was in the UK, obviously, I wasn't in Ireland. No. And that's where my three children were. And so they had to grow up with a mother that was absent, you know, every time I had to go to the UK. But then so that I could eat. And eventually he has the first trial and you were present. How overwhelming is that experience for a family member, especially in a case where it was high profile and there was obviously a lot of public and media interest? How difficult was that process of trial? It was like a nightmare. I often liken it to, you know, sometimes we have a dream where we're someplace and we're naked and everybody else is dressed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's actually what it felt like. Every single day that I went into court so that Barry could see me and know he was supported, I had to run the gauntlet of the media. And it just felt like that, like walking through the street naked. And these people were there all shoving their microphones in my face and taking photographs and filming for TV. And I mean, you might do that with a celebrity, but I'm no celebrity. No, you, like you said before, before all this, you were a mother, a wife, you had your own life in Ireland, and then you're thrown into this situation. Looking, talking about Barry's case, I know very early on, in fact, the first time Michael Mansfield, you said, went to see him, he realised that Barry had some sort of learning difficulties or communication issues. And he actually asked for various experts to do assessments. What was Barry's sort of diagnosis? Because I know that he has a number of conditions. Barry does have a number of conditions and they all of them would affect his ability to understand things and to communicate, which of course is the biggest thing. Michael Mansfield went in to visit his client for the first time and Barry had a solicitor and a junior barrister and neither of them had realised that the awkwardness that they were coming up against in trying to deal with Barry was actually not his fault. They thought he was an awkward person. And when Mike Mansfield said to them, something's not right here, what's going on? And they just said, well, he's awkward. And he said, you can't be serious. This is a mental health issue. I want forensic mental health team in here. And it was at that time that they diagnosed other issues for Barry. So we knew epilepsy, we knew the ADHD, though he was no longer hyperactive, but he still has the attention deficit part mm -hmm. of the ADHD. But they then diagnosed him as being on the autistic spectrum. He has Asperger's syndrome, 
which quite severely affects his ability to understand things or to communicate how he's feeling. Mm -hmm. And they found that he had brain damage that none of us knew anything about. And nobody could explain where this brain damage had come from, but the brain damage was all to the frontal lobe of his head and it affects his short-term memory. So if Barry doesn't repeat something enough times to make it into a long-term memory, he's not going to remember it. So for Barry being asked, what did you do at this time a whole year ago by the police when they picked him up? That was crazy. He couldn't possibly tell them. He did the best he could and he got it wrong. The evidence was obviously the, the gunshot residue, which we've talked about, the main evidence. There was also alibi evidence and he had, as you said, to the been at a particular place at a particular time, but he got the timing wrong. But it transpires that he was somewhere else and he wouldn't have been able to commit the offence when you actually get the timings right. That's correct. He went to a disability centre with a big bag of papers and that's Barry, even today. Wasn't it to do with housing? It was. He doesn't ever get to deal with bureaucracy in time because he forgets, because he goes off on a tangent, you know, because he decides, oh, I need to go to breakfast. I'm going to go down to the local cafe Mm -hmm. and then he'll wander off and do something else. And he's not thinking about these things until they become a big problem so that this thing had become a big problem. And he decided he he wasn't making an appointment. Barry doesn't really make appointments if he can help it. He just thinks if he goes and throws himself on their mercy, they'll sort it out for him. So he'd gone to this disability centre where they do just that. They mediate, they help. And they said to him, we can't see you today. You didn't come with an appointment. And he sat there and he tried to get them to change their minds. That's what he does. That's Barry all out. He's still the same today. And he could not get the managing the managers there to change their mind. No, we'll make an appointment for you tomorrow. So all of that probably took about 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. So somebody else came out. And in the book, I explained that this woman had just started her job that day. And she came out and she said, you know, I'm really sorry I can't see you today, but I will see you tomorrow. And she wrote on the top of her page what time she came to speak with the client Mm -hmm. and made an appointment for him to come the following day. So she knew what time she'd seen him. And he'd been there about 20 minutes fussing and trying to get them to change their mind. And when those times were looked at, because other people you see, they came up with different times, people within the centre, I suppose unless you write something down, you look at your watch. Yes. Everyone's going to remember things slightly differently, aren't they? They do. And the clock had changed. Okay. So that threw things out by an hour or even two hours, if you think of it the wrong way around. Yeah. And so there were four people and they all had a different time. But the one that had written down the time, she was sort of sidelined like she wasn't important. So they focused on the others. Yes, because their times were later. And that matched up with what had taken place. Well, it would have given him the ability to be in Gowan Avenue where the murder took place. But if you go with the person who did meet him. And wrote the time down. And wrote the time down. It was 10 to 12. And he must have been there about 20 minutes and Jill was killed at 11.35. He couldn't be all the way over there, having walked all the way there, wearing different clothes to the person that was in the street who was seen leaving the scene, though no one saw her being killed. It was an absolute impossibility. And so it didn't fit this woman saying that he was there at 11.50. So they tried to sideline her and say she got it all wrong. She had her own mental health issues, they said. I also know that one of the things was that they to do with the identification. And there were a number of people, witnesses that saw different people at different times. And my understanding is that the only witness that positively ID Barry was someone that had seen like Barry, according to her, four and a half hours before the actual murder took place. That's correct. So in the street that morning, this woman was walking to work. She saw somebody who looked suspicious in her mind. And so she watched him. He was standing beside a double parked car and he had sort of long floppy hair to his shoulder. 
and he didn't like being looked at and so she took note of him and it was a year later when police I think she may have come forward at the beginning but because it was four and a half hours nobody took much notice of it but it then became really important because other people had seen someone in the street at different times wearing different outfits and for anybody who wouldn't know Gowan Avenue it's a th- it's a through fair you know you walk from there through Gowan Avenue to reach another train station or a bus stop so all the business people would have been walking through there going to work that morning but the person at the scene of the crime seen leaving it was wearing a wax jacket according to two very good witnesses wax jacket and had floppy hair to the shoulder and Barry's hair was cut up military style how do we deal with his hairstyle at this point because I know Years later, and I appreciate we were talking about the trial a while ago, but it transpired that his barber, he had quite a sort of, he liked a particular hair, a particular haircut or style at the time. And his barber, years later, told documentary makers that Barry's style was nothing like what the witnesses had described. That's correct. But he Channel wasn't called as a witness or spoken to it. No, he wasn't. Channel 4 did a documentary, and that's where we found all of this out. But it was after Barry had been convicted. Barry had said to his solicitor right at the very beginning, when the hairstyle seemed to be an issue, he said, find my barber, because he'd moved premises, find my barber, he'll tell you what my hair was like last year. And his solicitor said to him, oh, well, we don't do that because that costs money. So they didn't speak to that witness? No. So you're at the trial, you've got the ID evidence, which is very flimsy because it's someone, the only positive idea, as we said, is someone that sees, who they believe is Barry, four and a half hours before. You've got the gunshot residue evidence. You've got the alibi evidence where one of the witnesses was ignored and they tried to sort of suggest that she had mental health issues or did suggest that as a way of sort of making the jury not believe. And I know there were things like magazines where it, it transpires that Barry was a hoarder and he had over 800 magazines and they'd sort of pick magazines or uh, articles relating to Jill Dando, even though... There were lots of celebrities mentioned in the magazines. I know when I was younger, I used to love, you know, the OK, the now, hello. But they tried to use that. Well, I mean, you can imagine a hoarder and there were these 800 publications. Now, obviously, some of them were going to contain something to do with Jill because she'd been killed. Some of the magazines were the BBC's own staff magazine. And Barry used to go and pick it up and, and he'd take it home and he might take one to my mum. And sometimes he didn't take it to my mum because he'd forgotten he left it piled in the in with the rest of the stuff he's hoarding. So 800 publications and they could only find eight with anything relating to Jill. So they focus on those eight. The to, to, to prove to a jury that Barry had an obsession with Jill. And also, they had he had some film, didn't he, which he hadn't actually processed. That's correct, yes. But they focused on that as well. Yes. There were, I think, 100 rolls of undeveloped 35mm film. So Barry was going out, taking photographs, trying to be this photographer. He was saying to people in the street, can I take photos of you? And the majority of people said yes. He didn't have any suspicious photographs in that, but we didn't find that out for years. So the police said he was out and in inverted commas, taking photos of women. Of course, we weren't privy to those photos. We were just family because we didn't count. So you hear things second, third hand when it comes to sort of evidence and going back to where we were talking about trial and how overwhelming that was. You know, like you said, you felt naked in a room where everyone else is dressed and you're trying to support Barry, who you know is probably finding it extremely, if not impossible, to understand things. And I know at one point Barry became unwell to the extent that he actually couldn't see anything. He was blind. That's correct. Yes. It's called psychogenic blindness. So his eyes worked, you know, you shine a light in his eyes, that his eyes are working, but his brain is not registering any images and it's a mental health issue. And he really was struggling. He was so fearful that he went into this condition and he was at court and, you know, they kept throwing chairs in his way because they said, you're not blind. There's nothing wrong with you. 
and they throw a chair in his way and he'd fall over it. This is the, the officers who brought him from Belmarsh, who were taking care of him down in the cells in so, the court. So from your point of view as a family member, not only do you feel, imagine, like you said, very isolated and overwhelmed by what's going on, you're also conscious that your brother, like you said, is really struggling and you can't do anything about it, you can't help him. No, you're totally helpless. And we wouldn't even have found these things out if Michael Mansfield hadn't asked for the forensics team to come in, the uh, mental health forensics. Right at the beginning, yes, yeah, because you wouldn't have known about all the different no. conditions that he had. No. And I know that there were two, if I like to say, two first trials, if I can put it like that. Yeah, that's was right. The, the first trial, and, I, and it's, it, it is unbelievable, really, because the first trial had to be abandoned because police the judge had allowed the media to publish a picture of barry and the police met police had given the media the picture they were given two photographs and we, we later realized one of them was of barry wearing a shirt and tie a white shirt and tie mm-hmm. um, and the and this was in custody the photograph was taken in custody and the other one was of him wearing a white forensic suit. And so what are you saying to the media when you produce those photographs to give to them? You are telling them you've got carte blanche to do what you like because we're giving you this shows you he must be guilty. And they chose the white suit, the forensic suit, rather than the shirt and tie. And that was used. And of course, then because of the prejudice caused by that, the first trial was abandoned, which I know you've talked about in your book, but I imagine was really upsetting because you come all the way expecting this situation to be resolved, your brother to be acquitted, and then you find you have to go back to Ireland and wait for a period of time before the second trial starts. Yes. Second, first trial, I call it. That's right. The, the, I call it the first trial re, redone or something. Yeah. Because like that, yes, I did have to go home to Ireland, but I was not important to the trial. And so therefore, they didn't even have to tell me when the trial was rescheduled for. So I had to be ready at a moment's notice. And remember, I've got three children, got a husband, I've got a house, I've got a career. Yeah. And I had to be ready at a moment's notice to pick up and get back in time for this trial that I didn't even know when the date would be because I didn't need to be told. So that must have been really distressing and like you said life has to be sort of put on hold while well, it's put on hold and, yeah. until this is resolved and eventually the trial takes place and Barry's found guilty. What was going through your head and it, it must be indescribable in many ways but that feeling when the jury foreman said those words guilty what what was going through your mind well obviously i knew it was an injustice i mean all of the media sat through the trial just the same as i did and they all said this guy's innocent they told me to my face wow this guy's innocent and then the jury couldn't make their decision they were sequestered so they had to go to a hotel. Yeah, overnight. And there were only 11 of them because one had been allowed to leave because I think somebody had died or something. So there were only 11 jurors and they couldn't get beyond nine to two. So the judge eventually said, I will take a majority verdict. Go away and think about that. And they came back with a nine to two guilty. And we were not long after the guilty verdict when those two came forward and said they were not happy with the way the jury had behaved. But that's kind of a a later thing. How we felt, we used to travel in on the underground, and I, for years, didn't even realise how I had gotten home from the court. It was so distressing that I obviously went into some sort of, I don't know, shock place. And later on, I found out that actually the police had driven us home, obviously recognising that we were going to be vulnerable out on the street. And But I didn't remember that. I do remember getting to my mother's place. And when I say we, it was my mother's brother as well. And we got to my mother's home. And again, there were the media encamped and mentioned it to the police officer who was dropping us off. And he said, there's nothing I can do. They're within their rights. So we went indoors and we were all in shock and we were in a terrible place. And I phoned the police and I said, you know, the media are encamped outside. You know, we've not done anything. Even if somebody believes Barry's guilty, we haven't done anything. Mm. We're innocent. And I was told again, there is nothing we can do because they are within their rights. 
And then we got a phone call from a neighbor to say how sorry she was. And she knew, you know, this was definitely wrong. And so she was chatting to us. And I, and I happened to say to her, I am so sorry that all this is going on outside your home as well. Yeah, because I imagine, it, like you said, it's not just your immediate family. It's all the whole of my community. mom's neighbors. Yeah. They couldn't go up and down the street. They couldn't open their own front doors either. They yeah. were coming in from work. And the media were there, you know, asking them questions, which they were not going to talk to the media, you know. You know, they saw my mother as a very quiet, decent woman. And so this woman, anyway, she was a spiky Irish woman. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, the police told you what? I said, they told me they won't move them because they have a right to be there. And I won't use the words that she used. Okay. I can imagine she one. said they might not move them from you for you. She said, you can bet they're going to move them from me. And she phoned the police and told them her children couldn't go out to play. Her children couldn't walk up and down the street. They had to come and move these people from outside the door. And they did. So they couldn't do it for us. But they would for her. Yes. So during the period, because I know there's obviously the appeals, there's two appeals. The first appeal was unsuccessful. And at that stage, he still had the same legal team. And obviously then there was a second appeal. But during the period before the case gets to the second appeal, what was life like for you? Because I imagine it was extremely difficult. Not only is your brother serving time for an offence he hasn't committed, your mum's health and as you said you've got your family and other commitments in Ireland what was life like it was like I was living two lives I had a life that I lived as normal as possible within Ireland so I still went to work and even though some people would look at you a little bit strangely most people actually believed me when I said it's a miscarriage of justice only some didn't in Ireland, they understand miscarriage of justice in Britain. They've had the Birmingham Six, the Guildford Four, the Maguire Seven. They understand. So most people accepted what I was saying. This was a miscarriage of justice. So I had to live with all of that. I still had to take my children to school. They had to deal with whatever came up for them. But thankfully, that was quite amazing because people were supportive of my children, which is almost unheard of. But it could be because it was Ireland and not England. And so my children didn't really come under too much. They would have come under a little, but it would have been a little. But then at a moment's notice, I would need to go back to the UK. Something was happening. I would need to be there. Or mum needed support and I needed to be there. I So I was backwards and forwards all the time. The only way that I found to actually deal with all of that was to be two people. I had to be one person when I was in Ireland. And I had to be a different person when I was in England, because in England, I didn't have children and I didn't have a job. And I was there for my mom, for my brother, for the media, because I needed to keep talking. And so I ended up living two lives. At some stage, I know the Criminal Case Review Commission looked at your brother's case and you actually took all the paperwork, is that right, with Someone from Mojo who was supporting you. That's correct, yes. Um, and you took the paperwork there, but it took them a significant period of time to look at the case before they then referred it. It was five years. So for five years, you're waiting, like you said, you're on tender hooks, wanting to know what's going to happen. Yeah, and sending more people and saying, look, if you've got evidence, because I was still having people contact me, I know something about Jill's death. Well, there's not much I can do with that information. You need to give it to the CCRC or the police. And of course, these people, they weren't going to talk to the police. I have no idea whether they did drop this stuff to the CCRC or not. Or whether they just felt comfortable saying that to you, but as you said, might not want to actually follow through with something so Yeah, cool. and I couldn't, we don't know who killed you. I couldn't put my family at risk by starting to investigate. But I imagine that was quite a daunting and upsetting, distressing period of time, because like you said, it's a five-year period. And yeah. you know your brother hasn't committed this offence and he's vulnerable, extremely vulnerable in a prison setting. But there's nothing you can do. You're just waiting. It's the waiting game. The CCRC, they had gone to the Forensic Science Service for another case. So not Barry's case. And it was while the guy was there, they were having a little chat. They'd finished with this other case and they were having a little chat. 
And they said, of course, you know, we did some more looking at this thing with the single particle in the Barry George case. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, the scientist that caught wasn't too happy that he seemed to have been convicted because of this. And so he and I talked about it and we carried out a mathematical equation. And actually, we don't feel he should have been convicted on that because it didn't help the court in any way. It's neutral. But this is five years after Barry was convicted. And these two people did this within days of Barry being convicted. So they sat on that information. Five years. You know, you, you just think that there's a perception, I think, within the public that if the justice system believes it got it wrong, it will do everything it can to right it. But actually, it's the very opposite. If the justice system even suspect they might have got it wrong, they just put a lid on it. Nothing comes forward. Nothing's ever said. And you have to prove that the justice system got it wrong. So it's sort of swept under the carpet. And meanwhile, everyone's life, like we said, is on hold. And when the Court of Appeal made the decision that the conviction was unsafe, Obviously, there was a retrial, so the second trial takes place, or some might say the third. Yes. Because of what happened originally. And how are you feeling about that third trial or second trial? Because obviously, you've been through so much. I was not trusting that it would find Barry innocent, simply because I couldn't trust it. I now could not trust the justice system to do what it ought to do. And I had to be mentally prepared for them coming along and saying, "Okay, that's it. He's guilty. And I was mentally prepared for it and mentally prepared to go back into battle. If I had to do this, then I would do it. But thankfully, I'd worked closely with the new team and I had because it was a new legal team. They obviously weren't at the trial for all of those weeks at the first one. Mm -hmm. And so there was things that don't come across in a piece of paper. So they could read all the papers they like, but things didn't come across. Well, you were actually there every day. I was there. And I was able to give them other information surrounding things that they wouldn't have known just from reading the papers. Because obviously they can't read every piece of paper that related to that trial. And also, it was huge. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I imagine that you were able to help them with Barry and, and making sure they understood his needs and difficulties and could communicate with him in a way that would ultimately help him in his defence. Yes, I tried to do that because dealing with Barry with his Asperger's and his brain damage is really quite difficult. And I knew that they were struggling with him. And so I couldn't see him in the week, of course, because we were in court, but I could go in on a Saturday and visit him. And so they would say to me, can you try and get him to understand that this is not important? We can't go looking at this again because it's not actually important. We need to look at these things. So we need him to talk to us about these things. So I would go in. And I would do all of that and I would explain things to Barry. One of the issues for Barry is something called perseveration. And it means that if he gets fixated on something, he can't get off it. And so he was fixated on the particle, but that was not relevant in this trial because the judge said that cannot be used anymore. It doesn't help the court. But in his head, that was... That was the big issue. An issue. So we we had to deal with all those things. During this time, I had Barry's solicitor contact me and tell me that should Barry be found innocent, there's a probation officer ready to help him. I didn't know whether that was right, but it didn't sound right. But if Barry was acquitted, then he wouldn't be an offender. Then he wouldn't be an offender. He doesn't need them. No. So that is... Very strange thing, a very strange thing. So I contacted Mojo, who said to me, under no circumstances, and explained it to me. And, I mean, I had already met with the Miscarriage of Justice Support Services, and they were set up by the government to help people who are a miscarriage of justice when they're released. And I'd already met with them. And so I started to feel uncomfortable going to the meetings with the legal team. And I mentioned it to the woman that I'd met from the MJSS. And she said, well, I can't come along in my official capacity, but I am a solicitor. So I can come along as your friend, your mediator, if you would like me to do that. I said, I would really appreciate that because I was going to these meetings on my own. 
And I got to the stage where I felt, I'm going to go to these meetings and they're basically going to shout me down. And this is my brother's life and our lives. Yeah, and so you're banging your head against the brick wall. Yes, if they're not hearing me, you know, is he going to be found guilty again? They'll go home for their tea. That'll be the end of it. So she did come. And they were, they tried for me to leave her outside. And I said, no, she's coming in. And so they weren't able to shout me down. And we got through the list of things that I wanted to talk to them about. And then that was all she had to do. So they knew who she was. They knew she was the MJSS. They knew that she would be Barry's support worker when he was released, should he be released. And yet I was getting this phone call about probation. And to really compound that, when we were at the retrial, somebody from probation came to speak to me. And I said, no, you're wrong. Somebody's told you wrong. If Barry's released, he's released because he's innocent. And that's not probation. When the jury went out this time around, like you said, you really didn't want to attach too much hope that he was going to be to uh, him being acquitted because of what happened in the past. And they actually said not guilty. What sort of went through your mind at that point? What sort of emotions came out? Because I imagine everything's been built up for so long. Yes. It's funny because I think I had been so many years not showing emotion that although we hurrahed Mm -hmm. in the court, after that I went back into almost automaton. I had work to do. I had things to do. Barry needed to be rescued now from the court. You know, there were all these other things to do. So we waited around in the court to be called because we wanted to speak to the media. And I heard a kerfuffle outside, but we couldn't see down to what was going on. And obviously some, I thought it was another case and somebody else was outside talking to the media. But actually it was Barry's solicitor was outside talking to the media and they hadn't called us. And there were three people there with five phones and our phones didn't ring. So eventually we went looking to find out where was Barry? This was so long. Only to have a very annoyed barrister meet us, dismiss one person and bring the two family members to meet up with Barry and told us that they had a bail hostel ready for him. And that I I said, you know, because you can imagine then there was all these emotions going through my head and I'm trying to to find the ones to grasp that were important. And, you know, we were being told that there was a taxi on the way. It was going to take him to the bail hostel because he couldn't go to his mother's house. And all this stuff was just coming at me and coming at me. You know, what are you going to do about it? What's your plan? And I thought, I don't believe this. And in the book, I just say, I'm standing in the wrong picture. Because you thought, presumably, this is the moment where actually things were going to get better. We thought we would be, would be jubilant. Yeah. And yet, like you said, the bill some of the emotions. I'm sure people can understand that. And, and you're yeah. trying to suppress it in that environment. But then the way you were being treated, I know you talk about it in your book. Yeah. Made you feel really extremely small, marginalised. Oh, in what should have been a celebratory moment. We should have been celebrating. All of us, legal team, everybody, we all should have been you should celebrating. Have been together, enjoying that, that moment. Yes, we should. And with Barry. Yes. And he might not have appreciated quite how significant Yeah, because he, he was almost in a position of shock as yeah, well. Yeah, the trance, I imagine. And yeah. And he didn't it. know he shouldn't go to a bail hostel. Why would he know? He wouldn't know that. And I said, but you know he's not supposed to go to a bail hostel. That's for released offenders. So what's your plan? What are you going to do? And they were blaming me because they said they couldn't contact me. But I was within the court building and there were five phones in the room. I wouldn't allow Barry to go to the bail hostel. I phoned the MJSS and she just said, what are they doing? No way he is to go there. He said, if, she said to me, if he goes there, he will be surrounded by the media you won't be able to go into him. So, of course, after all these years, his mother wouldn't even be able to give him a hug. And she said, there is no way he is to go to a bail hostel. So while I'm in with this meeting, with this stuff going on around me, I'm having to tune it out so that I can operate. So then having phoned her, I phoned the hostel and they said, no, nobody can come in. I said, right. So I said, he won't be coming. 
And then I phoned um, somebody from Mojo and he said to me, I've got a hotel booked, send him there. Dealing with the aftermath, what was life like in particular for you after he was acquitted? With, I mean, there were all sorts of things and I'll have to say people need to read the book because... Can I just endorse you need to read the book? It's a real insight into what it's like for a family member. Yes, it really is. And the unexpected things that you end up dealing with. But we went to the Isle of Wight for some time to ourselves but the media were following and then all sorts of stories started to come out in the paper Barry had been seen doing this Barry had been seen doing that we knew all of them were not true but they were being printed and eventually Barry's solicitor said to me can you get him out of London he said because he's not safe here and I had to get him out of London the city of his birth and he couldn't live there anymore no if you give one piece of advice to someone who is a family member now, as we speak, of someone who is either still been investigated for an offence they haven't committed, or someone, for instance, who is family member, I was awaiting trial, or has been convicted of a crime they didn't commit, what would your, if you give one piece of advice, I know that's probably quite an impossible task, but to a family member, what would you advise them to do? It would depend on whether they've been convicted or not. If they are waiting to find out whether their loved one's going to get to trial, I would say, understand this, the police and the media and the prosecution are not on your side. They have an agenda and it's not the same as yours. So you've got to be very careful. So people need to understand they need their own legal team. It's really important. And I know it costs money, but it's a very important thing to do. And then to ensure that they get the whole picture. You know, don't think that somebody who comes to you from the media for a story is there. They'll tell you it's because they believe your loved one's innocent. You can't accept that. They will write what they want to write, regardless of what you tell them. So it's why I wanted the book to come out, to tell these people. But I was asked at one of the miscarriage of justice groups, the meetings, what I would suggest. Their loved one was in prison. And I said, okay, for your family, I would say to you, only fight where there's something to gain. Don't keep fighting because you're banging your head against the wall. And when it does come to where it's important, you'll have no energy left. So if there's nothing to gain, stop fighting. So essentially pick your battles. Exactly. Make sure the battles are going to produce something. Thank you for listening to that episode. I'd like to thank Michelle for being kind enough to share her story about what happened to her and her family when her brother Barry George was wrongfully convicted of the murder of Jill Dando. For the next episode, I flew up to Glasgow to talk to Kathy and the team at Mojo. Mojo was the miscarriage of justice organisation set up by Paddy Hill, one of the Birmingham Six, and he created it to give a voice to the innocent. They were kind enough to invite me into the Mojo family. 